Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm bringing you a expedited conversation with Adrian Redlich, the CEO of Merrick's Capital, and we're talking about the Partners Fund or the Private Debt Fund that we last spoke about in episode 33 back in March 2019. This is part of a series that we're bringing out around the COVID-19 period in an expedited fashion to provide people with more information. Please remember that this isn't designed to be specific advice, and I encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Please keep the feedback coming through with questions and suggestions. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the podcast. Adrian, welcome to Inside the Rope. Hey, good morning, David. Good to speak to you again. Yes, albeit in uh, slightly uh, unusual circumstances with uh, everybody dealing with COVID-19 and uh, really appreciate your time. I understand that these are unprecedented times and very, very busy in markets and lots going on. So straight off the bat, thank you for carving out this um, time to record it, record it with us. Um, how is the business faring? How are you and your family, everyone coping okay? Yeah, everyone's well. Um, I myself was uh, seeing clients in North America a few weeks ago, so on return, found myself in isolation. Um, interesting experience, being away from the world and my family for quite a few weeks. And particularly watching uh, watching markets go up and down, gives um, a lot of time to, to ponder, but also, um, yeah, there's been some pretty... Some pretty dark moments there, watching how the markets behaved and credit markets seizing up, um, and it certainly um, certainly makes um, us feel a little bit better. Where you know we sort of moved our entire business to really focusing on senior lending against um, real property you know, in, in terms of in terms of commercial real estate, agriculture, infrastructure. Um, it feels like a much safer place to be at this point of the cycle. Adrian, it's probably worthwhile. We have recorded a podcast that our listeners, I'm sure, would have listened to sort of episodes. Um, but it may be worthwhile to touch on um, the the Merrick's Partners Fund that we spoke about previously and we we're talking about today. Clarify that my view is there's a $418 million fund that writes loans between Five million. Those loans are typically twelve to thirty months, um, and they typically first mortgages or senior lending. Um, do you want to maybe just add to that as a refresher for clients in terms of the fund, what it does, how it does it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's worth that recap. So we're approximately a two billion dollar fund manager. Um, around seventy five percent of our um, funds come from institutional clients, particularly North American pension endowment uh, and financial institutions. Um, the fund you're referring to, the Partners Fund, is our um, Australian unit trust version of that fund, which um, the investors, on large part, uh, through you know, wealth management groups um, that co-invests alongside our institutional partners and also alongside us as a business. So the owners of, of our business have $120 million invested in this strategy alongside the, the partners fund um, as well. So, um, yeah, so uh, media, yeah, wealth, wealth platforms and their clients are basically investing on some of the world's biggest institutions um, and our own money. 
Um, the Partners Fund invests in um, real estate loans, um, first mortgage real estate loans. So, you know, we're, we're always the senior debt in the structure. Um, sometimes some of the structures are, are complicated, um, but, you know, 95% of them are just traditional first mortgages. Um, others have slightly more complex structure, but we're always the senior debt. Always um, well protected. Um, and that's been some, a, a deliberate decision over the last three, four years to move to that part of the, the capital stack um, as, you know, as we felt property prices were getting more stretched, um, as we found ourselves less certain about the markets in general, they didn't make sense to us. Um, and that, that's not you know, to say we, by any means, obviously predicted what's going on today. Um, it was just we found we couldn't out um, in, in a lot of sectors because it didn't make sense to us where the world was going. And that led us to a place where you know, we could find great risk-adjusted returns and that was in the most boring senior part of um, the capital stack, providing first mortgages against real property. Um, currently, the Partners Fund has um, 34 loans in it. Um, it's, uh, as you said, the, the fund's NAV is, is um, at the end of February 2020 was... 418 million. Um, at the end of this last month, uh, March, we're just going through the, the performance numbers. Um, I anticipate the fund will be up a couple of percent for the month. Um, so one of our, our better months, maybe maybe as much as 3%. Um, part of that is driven by just the performance of our loan book, um, generating between that half a percent and 1% a month. But in addition to that, we've been introducing hedges into the portfolio to hedge a, a macro blow up. Um, views um, you know, between one and two percent over the last month um, and contribute in the prior month and you know certainly if we see a economic, complete economic meltdown we'll continue to provide some protection um, in the portfolio. And Adrian what sort of hedges were they that you put in place you referred to a macro hedge were they uh, intrade swaps or um, a variety of tools? Yeah, they were effectively credit default swaps. So in essence, what they are is they reflect um, the credit on sub-debt in banks, in some of the REITs. Um, and we've even used um, credit default swaps on the government of Australia. And so why we've used those hedges is they tend to be highly correlated with any liquidity crisis, economic meltdown. Um, and I don't think in our wildest dreams did we imagine um, COVID-19 um, and the fiscal deficit that we're going to see in the budget um, and the half a billion dollars of, sorry, 500 billion. Um, I can't even say that number 500 billion is you know, with a straight face, right? Half a billion comes out easily. But the numbers we're all getting used to, 500 billion um, of, of potentially new government debt this year, it's going to have... a significant impact on credit spreads of banks, governments, um, and all you know, our institutions. And that's what that hedge is there for. So the reason we went with credit default swaps, they trade every minute of the day. It's a insurance premium that we don't have to go to an insurance company to collect and fight about whether there's defaults. It's something where there's a market price um, effectively every minute of the day, and it allows us to cash out some liquidity um, if we're seeing problems. And the notion uh, around putting in those credit default swaps was offset against um, building a portfolio of loans 
that was paying you know, various loans between 8 and 13% um, for uh, against commercial real estate, agriculture, um, and potentially infrastructure. We don't have any infrastructure in the lo loans in the portfolio at the moment. We are looking at some, but it's you know, predominantly commercial real estate and agriculture with commercial real estate representing um, representing around 80% of the, the portfolio at this point in time and agriculture around 20 odd percent of the, the portfolio. Um, and commercial real estate you know, is made up of a, a number of sectors. You know, for us, we have um, by exposure at this point in time, around 30% in residential, um, uh, around 20% in mixed use. So mixed use might be a residential building combined with some retail and maybe a hotel or some office. Um, we have 15% of the portfolio expo exposed to office. Um, we have 3% of the portfolio is in hotels, um, which is probably the most challenged sector in our, our portfolio at the moment. Um, and um, another 17 odd percent um, is in land that um, is in the pre-development phase um, for, you know, for land subdivision um, or new office or residential buildings. Um, so reasonably well diversified. Um, the portfolio is a, is a little skewed to the moment. So we have approximately half the portfolio is um, New Zealand oriented, around a quarter is in New South Wales. Um, we do have a little over 10% in New Zealand um, and the rest is spread amongst WA and Queensland and Tasmania. Um, so reasonably well diversified across 34 loans um, in the portfolio um, and all senior senior debt. Um, yeah, the, the portfolio over the last three years has, has generated um, fairly consistently around a 12% return. Um, spreads have tended to come in a little bit as the base interest rates uh, or risk-free rates have, have come in a little bit. Um, when we first started the strategy, we were looking at 10-year bonds in Australia at 3-4%. Now we're obviously approaching 0.5%. You know, um, and traditionally, you can expect all fixed income instruments to track down to, to um, some corresponding level. Um, at the moment, yeah, we, we obviously have seen things widen again because we're in a crisis, but the portfolio in general is still been tracking as we're writing these loans at double digit type interest rates on average um, and continuing to perform. Um, at this point in time, you know, we're, we're entering into a, an unknown period. You know, how is real estate going to perform? How are borrowers going to perform as they're asked to repay loans over the coming our longest duration loan is three years. Um, our shorter duration loans are sort of in that six to 12 month period. Um, and so it's going to be a, no doubt a challenging time for borrowers. Um, obviously our, our position is that we're secured on average um, just, just under 60% loan to value against um, all these, these properties. Um, so we're in, a, we're in an extremely conservative position. Um, and as we've discussed before, we're in a position that is um, it's similar to where banks have operated for many decades. Um, the opportunity for us has really been driven by the regulators requiring banks to step back in their provision of, of credit in this space. And that's created the opportunity for, for us and a number of other non-bank lenders. 
Adrian, I think you uh, may have just broken out a little bit there when you referenced uh, the exposure to New Zealand. It may be one of the two other Clark daughters doing online learning in other rooms uh, via Zoom and with. Um, can you just repeat what exposure as a proportion there is to the New Zealand market? Yeah, just over 10%. Just over 10%. Just over 10%. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and that New, in New Zealand, and, and we only have some ag agricultural loans. So New Zealand is, makes up um, ag, um, and it's, it's, that's made up of 11 dairy farms in New Zealand in, in that portion. Um, and yeah, New Zealand, um, the opportunity is one um, in commercial real estate, we're looking at a few opportunities, but agriculture in particular, where the sector is actually performing quite well, um, particularly in, in dairy, milk prices high. Um, we're seeing agriculture actually benefit from COVID-19 as demand for food um, continues to be very strong. Export numbers are good. Um, but the banking system in New Zealand, which is effectively the Australian banking system, it's the same four banks, um, are under extreme pressure from Reserve Bank of New Zealand to reduce their exposure to agriculture. And so as one of the few who have experience in agriculture, um, it's, pre it's presenting a great opportunity for us over the last few years. And Adrian, I think you referenced uh, there that 95% of the loans are senior uh, or first mortgages. Um, is that accurate and or what, what are the other 5% typically? Yeah, so all loans are first ranking security, meaning they're the most senior loans in the capital stack. Um, I, I'm trying to be quite precise with people when I say only 95% are traditional first mortgage where we have the same style of documentation and mortgage that the bank will have on your house. Um, the other 5% are loans that might be just a little bit more complicated in the sense that we have um, set, we, we hold a different form of security, but we're always the most senior debt in a capital structure. Um, and that's because some of the development loans can be complex where there's landowners, developers, joint venture partners, and in some cases they're offering up um, secondary security to to um, protect the first mortgage as well. So, you know, it's, it's always important to be clear. Sometimes um, having that 5%, which is um, a little more structurally complicated, um, gets people to ask a lot of questions, but it is accurate. You know, it's, I just want to be accurate in terms of the description sure. without derailing um, people's perception that this is a funding portfolio. Yep. Adrian, what, what's the biggest loan as a proportion of the portfolio? Um, the biggest loan as it stands is around 38 million. So 38 million on, um, on 420 odd million or, yeah. I, I think or the, like the that. net, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Look, and one of the, one of the challenges with, um, private loans, unlike a share portfolio or a bond portfolio, you can't create the perfect portfolio by just buying and selling shares every day. Um, and one of the reasons that um, some of the loans tend to be bigger than others is that it follows the evolution of the fund. You know, when your fund is 200 million, um, you might be happy to write a $20 million loan. When your fund is you know, 420, you might be happy to write a you know, $35 million loan. Um, and so to get that perfect diversity, 
location and size um, is is somewhat challenged, right? Um, and it's something that people need to be aware of. But um, at the same time, you know, it's it's a broadly diversified portfolio. Um, well, I, th I think Adrian, the other point is it's it's quite mature in that when organisations are starting out, the risk that they've got to take on loans that are disproportionate to the size of the portfolio. Um, and I, I think also it's probably a reasonable point on the fact that there has been uh, you know, quite a strong growth in credit and private debt as the banks um, over the last few years uh, have avoided the area for a number of reasons that we discussed in the first podcast. Um, but there's also been a lot of organisations come to market with really single line, single loan um, opportunities that they've structured for clients. And I, I, I suspect over the next months, we're really going to see the value of having a portfolio of loans um, and the benefit that diversification and that portfolio gives, even if you may pay a little bit away to an organisation to manage that for you. Um, and in fact, when I, when I look at it, it's not a lot that you pay away, um, but the, the benefit of that diversification, I suspect we're going to see. Yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah, diversification, as I say, is the only free lunch in um, in terms of risk. Um, and no doubt we're going to have some borrowers are going to have trouble repaying um, and it's going to take longer to see that repayment. Um, in other cases, yeah, we'll see cash flow um, as expected, um, but across a broad portfolio, yeah, that puts us in a good position to, to manage cash flow and, and manage risk. Um, and I think when you put in the context, if your average loan size, whilst there are two loans that are in excess of 5%, the majority of loans are going to be a couple of percent of the overall portfolio. If you have a delay um, in our loan repayments, um, you know, it's not going to create a crisis. We are actually, we do find ourselves at this point in time with lots of liquidity. We have um, around 20% cash in the in the portfolio and that's because we have a number of loans going through due diligence with the onset of coronavirus, we've sort of pulled back on pulling the trigger in, um, in terms of some of those loans, um, revisiting them, um, stress testing them. Um, we also have a reasonable amount of cash being created or held on margin against our, our um, hedges. So there's actually another pool of cash that we can tap into. And so we, we just need to plan for worst case scenario. You know, I think the whole world is sitting here and saying, you know, let's, let's take care of defense first. Let's make sure we can fund, you know, we can fund all our construction loans all the way through. If some of the builders have problems, let's make sure we've got the wherewithal to finish buildings, step in um, and deliver the, the collateral that um, puts us in a really low risk position. Um, and then let's play offense. Once we know what the world looks like, we're seeing a whole series of loans um, turn up on our doorstep at the moment. Um, our normal flow is, is around um, somewhere between 12 and 20 opportunities a month that we see. Um, in the month of March, we saw 60. Um, wow. And yeah, so, and, and I think that it's, it's coming thick and fast. Um, and so some of the smaller players who were syndicating loans that you referred to earlier um, are not actually able to fund. Um, we're seeing some of the bigger players, some of the big offshore banks um, who have 
been investment banks have been playing in the non-bank lending space as well have put loans on hold um, and so we're seeing a little bit of atrophy and and, and that's what market sell-offs are you know they're, they're a liquidity crisis in a nutshell right that's, and we've seen that from equity markets credit markets we saw it in the Aussie dollar we saw it in the the 10-year bond you know we saw it 10 days ago in 10-year bond where um, the 10-year bonds you know went from 0.6 percent yield to 2.4% yield in 10 minutes where there was just no liquidity in the market um, and where our market is is no different. So um, the liquidity is is dried up. Um, there are still lots of opportunities, but what that's meant from us when we think about the offensive side in terms of what opportunities can we take advantage of, the focus for us moves from construction finance um, or development finance um, and moving to being a little bit more opportunistic in finished office or finished buildings or residential um, where the market four weeks ago was probably providing debt at five six percent for finished apartment buildings um, today it's probably nine to ten percent um, in office you know, it was probably four to five percent in non-bank space today again we're at seven or eight percent and our, our feeling is to move to the highest um, quality piece of the capital stack and lowest risk. And I'd rather earn eight, nine, 10% um, on something that I guess in, inherently feels like it should be paying three or four than trying to earn 15 or 20 from the construction loans that we may have been earning 12 or 13. Um, and so that that's, I think the message, that's where we're going and that's, that's what we're focused on at this point in time in terms of new opportunities. So Adrian, you, you mentioned earlier on that about 3% is uh, exposed to hotels. And I think that uh, is an area everybody looks at and says, well, you know, and I, I've got a few friends who own a number of pubs and, you know, for most businesses, if you have a bad three or four, six months where revenue's off, you've got a little bit of trouble. Um, but to think of a business operating for three to six months, potentially with no revenue, um, it's quite catastrophic. Um, have they or any other loans within the portfolio ceased paying um, the, the interest or repayments or debt? Uh, so a couple of questions there. The first, the hotels. Um, the hotels um, really represent two loans. One is to against a Accor hotel in Clarence Street in Sydney. Um, mm -hmm. It's at a 50% loan to value. The reason they were with us, it was an offshore group, a reasonably well-established group offshore that was buying their first hotel in Australia. They didn't have a relationship with the, the banks. And so I think we were really seen as sort of a bridge to as they built their portfolio then to take that portfolio to one of the commercial banks. Um, and the second reason they're with us is they wanted to do some refurb also. And the banks are sort of challenged when you empty out half the building and you're doing some refurbishment. Um, that refurbishment hasn't actually begun. It was planned to begin shortly. Um, ironically, it'll probably be a very good time to do refurbishment anyway. So on, on that, on the larger the, the loans with the hotels, um, it's very good, solid building in Clarence Street and CBD Sydney. Um, we don't have really any concerns. Um, a smaller loan is for three tourist hotels in Tasmania. Um, at this point in time, they're paying running yield. They've serviced their loan this month. 
Um, they're indicating to us they're in good shape. Their balance sheet's in good shape. Um, but you know, you never you never know. Um, it's you know, it's going to be really challenged. I think uh, how does how does tourism through Tasmania perform? Um, and so you know that that's a loan that represents. Um, as I say, you know, it's I think it's one one and a half percent maybe of the the portfolio. Um, it's not a huge material piece. Um, and when you think about the diversified portfolio where we're earning, where we're probably going to earn two or three percent performance this month, um, if at some point that we had to have some impairment, um, uh, you know, twenty million dollars worth of property in Tasmania, maybe in an Armageddon, and it owes us ten million. In an Armageddon, and, and um, those numbers are fictional, by the way, they're not the exact numbers, but mm. um, in an Armageddon type scenario, what is real property worth? It's not zero, right? We know it's not zero. So unlike a share portfolio where some of your shares can trade to zero, none of our loans can be a zero. And I think that's that's a very important yeah. point to remember. The well, downside the argu- is quite limited. Yeah. The, the argument may well be if you actually take possession of some of those properties um, you know, in two or three years' time, you may well actually make more money out of that trade on the the asset or the property than you would have out of the income or the earnings on that. Yeah, look, the the dirty secret of credit funds is always um, a slight delay of of payments um, or a bit of defaults. You actually earn a higher rate, and when you have a first mortgage that has so much security headroom. Um, you're not really looking at impairments. So, you know, you get paid to deal with the problems and to help borrowers out in the sense of work through their problems, see if you can come up with a solution. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the idea. And I think one of the things that differentiates us from the banks, you know, when you're earning 10% on a loan um, and the loan's a reasonable size, you can spend a lot of time as the manager on them. When it's in bank land, um, it's very challenging. You know, banks don't have the resources to deal with hundreds of small loans that are problematic. So they tend to deal with them in a very legalistic way as opposed to a commercial process and sitting down with you know, the borrower and say, okay, how do we work with you to you know, to work your way through this problem? And ultimately, your recourse is always to sell the property um, or, you know, if, and if no one wants to pay out your debt, you can end up owning that property. Um, loan to own as a strategy in Australia is not, is not an easy one. It's not one we embark on as a, as a general strategy, but it's a good fallback position. Um, and I think right now is, you know, where we're seeing opportunities for um, residual stock in apartment buildings, you know, in a completed apartment building, um, as an example, might, might be a 200 apartment apartment building, a hundred of those apartments was pre-sold um, and you know, the borrower needs to refinance 50 to get rid of all existing debt um, and you go in and re- refinance 50 apartments and you're doing that at a 50% loan to value and maybe achieving 9% interest. Um, I think all of us would, even in this environment, think that owning owning apartments at a 50% discount to replacement cost um, would be a good investment um, and so I think taking the risk earning earning nine percent on those loans um, is a nice place to be. Adrian are there any of the mortgages that you um, or any of the debts that you have to developers where they've actually stopped work on those projects at the moment? 
Um, no. So at this point in time, all the developers are on site, um, all the building companies are on site. Um, when when COVID-19 first became apparent through January, February of 2020, we obviously had a lot of concern around supply chain, particularly out of China. That was, you know, ironically, that was the context of a lot of our work and, and risk management. Um, as it's turned out that um, there's been limited delays in supplies um, and China's actually at this point in time back to work. Um, I am cynical of probably some of the numbers being disclosed in China of how, how remarkable their recovery is. But at this point in time, we are seeing um, we are seeing all product flow, and so that element is is on issue. What's become more challenging for the big construction companies is running rotating shifts on sites where they have people you know, distancing and social distancing, and and trying to keep crews of, of people um, operating in a in a safe and healthy fashion. Um, at this point in time, they're not suggesting there's delays, but it's not hard to imagine that's going to create a backlog. And certainly, if um, we see sites shut down for any period of time, um, that will be a concern. But at this point in time, everyone's um, reporting um, they're on site um, and you know, proceeding approximately you know, within, within budget. Um, but I'd have to think we're going to start to see a few delays just because of the way they're operating. If you've got, if you've got three, 400 workers on site, and you have to get them all up to the 40th floor or onto different parts of the site, and you can't put people into a elevator all at the same time, you have to stagger them, it's gonna be somewhat problematic. And I think we're gonna hear stories across the economy um, similar to that. And they're, and they're probably the good stories, to be honest, because they're the businesses that are still operating. Um, and construction clearly is you know, uh, our, our biggest employer now. Um, it's surpassed retail. Um, it's surpassed, you know, it's, it's larger than health services and so keeping um, the construction industry operating is clearly a big focus for the government at this point in time. And, and right now they seem to be doing a good job, but I don't think it would shock any of us if it got, you know, closed down for two or three weeks um, to deal with, deal with COVID-19. Yeah. I think our listeners can well relate to the logistical challenges of trying to run a work site. I think it's tough enough to walk the dog with everyone else trying to get their exercise while keeping your one and a half metre. It's a, it's a bit like a game of Frogger on the paths and tracks out there. Um, Adrian, can you give our listeners a bit of an idea or, how, or, or some advice of how they should think about their exposure to um, funds like this in that I, I think they'll obviously, you know, look at March statements and CSC of red um, and they'll look at um, things like Merricks and private credit and go, well, that's fantastic. Um, we're really, really happy with that result, really happy that we've actually maintained capital, happy that we've got a good solid return on top of that because of some of the uh, strategies you've put in play like the hedging, etc. However, I think there's a tendency for uh, a lot of people to think about it as a little bit of a binary situation where it's all, all good until it isn't. Um, how would you encourage them to think about their exposure to private credit portfolio sense? Yeah, so I think it, it's clear to, to most investors when they invested with us and similar funds that they were garnishing a liquidity premium. Yeah, they were going into private credit, where it wasn't a liquid market, yeah, you know, they couldn't 
just put the money in and pull it out um, at will, unlike selling shares or you know, selling your cash management trust. Um, they were garnering a, a liquidity premium. So they were getting overpaid for locking their money up. Um, and I think that is going to be the area where for some, um, it's they're going to have to be reminded of that and they're going to be potentially unhappy about it. Yeah, I've had one or two calls where people say, oh, I'd like to redeem my money. I, actually, your portfolio's done well. I'd like to go and buy shares now that are down 40%. Um, and the discussion, as we've said, from the outset is you know, you, you'll get repaid when the loans get repaid. That's the nature of mortgage funds. And where they went wrong in the GSE was people unrealistically offering liquidity um, uh, when they were investing in an underlying mortgage that had a five-year duration. So there was a mismatch. People were earning um, a return that markets assumed they were taking on liquidity risk and then um, they wanted liquidity at that time. And some funds naively gave that structure. Not many do today. So I think importantly, those that have the right structure and hopefully the right investor base that they realise um, they're in this for the next year, two, three years. Um, you know, they, I don't think there's a lot of risk. You know, I think no doubt we'll see some delays um, of repayments. And so we need to, as the fund manager, we need to make sure we're doing our job and manage the liquidity in terms of our future construction commitments we can meet um, we're in good shape, um, make sure that we finish buildings that you know, deliver the security um, in which we're providing those loans. Um, but if those things go to order and we're not dealt with a liquidity crisis, I don't think we're going to see a lot of impairments to our loans um, because when you're at 60% loan to value, um, property prices would have to fall by 40% um, for you to start losing money and it would have to fall across the economy um, or across the, the sector by 40%. And even if you look at, you know, some people might be cynical and suggest, well, some of the residential apartment developments, they could fall 50% and, you know, my home might only fall 15 um, And that's possible, again, in, in sort of a, a liquidity-driven event. But even if that is the case, you know, if we see general real estate falling 15 20 30%, um, our insurance portfolio is going to increase significantly more in, in value. Um, and so we'll have some offsets. So I wouldn't sit here today and say in an absolute Armageddon scenario that I guarantee we don't lose any money in, in any light. And that would be very naive because history tells you it is possible. What I would say is we've got lots of offsets, which is we're earning interest that's accruing at double digit return. Um, and so even if we have a few percent offset, well, the worst outcome then would be instead of earning 10% interest, we'd earn a net eight for the portfolio. I don't think that would be an Armageddon type outcome for anyone. Um, the the second is that people just need to get their mind around that they can't, They it may take longer to get repaid. So it's possible um, that it takes longer. Again, that doesn't mean there's any impairment to the portfolio, but it may take it may take a little bit longer to uh, to get repaid. Um, but lastly, I would say, you know, this is, this is to use a cliche, you know, it's sort of safe as houses in the sense that, you know, we are really looking at bricks and mortar. We're in hard assets. Um, and I personally, as you know, one of the biggest investors in the strategy, take some comfort as I don't know where this banking system is going, um, that ultimately... We own a, a, you know, a financial instrument, which is a loan, but ultimately it's backed by a building or land or a farm somewhere, um, which is not a bad place to be. And so 
I know, I, there's always stress and fear and and when anyone looks at any fund they have the sense that it could be a black box I don't know what's what's going on um, you know we're very unlikely to be the place of a lot of concern relative to share portfolios and high yield credit that's the message I would send to people but um, we none of us know what the world's going to bring um, so it is possible there's some some loans but and they will be delayed and so people will see positive marks and yes an impairment may only show up in two three four months that is possible and Adrian are you seeing any or much inflow we are. I mean, at the moment, this month, we have a small net inflow. Um, I'm sure as we look at next month, you know, and we talk to people, I think there'll be some people that want to redeem. But um, important to remember the way that our redemption process works is that you get put into a share class, which or unit class, which just effectively gets repaid as all existing loans get repaid. You don't participate in the new loans going forward. Um, so you know that that redemption process is a is a um, you know is a slow one, um, but we're not seeing a huge wave of, of redemptions. We're seeing lots of questions um, similar, to, David, to you know, what we're discussing today. Um, what's the position? What's the certainty? Um, and I think with any market that's as volatile as the one we're seeing now, people are oscillating between greed and fear. You know, they're having a discussion saying, "Should I put all my money under the bed?" Um, or maybe, hang on, if you can lend against really boring apartments or housing today and earn 9 or 10%, maybe I should be opportunistic in doing that. So, and it's the same person can be oscillating between um, those emotions within a five-minute conversation. And I think you as an advisor, I mean, I'm sure you're seeing that across the board and, and we're no different with that experience. Um, my best guess is that we'll see limited inflows. Yeah, I, th I think we'll see limited inflows or outflows in general. You know, we're not we're not out there committing to um, to checks that we can't write based on our funds under management today. Um, we're in a position that we found ourselves with a bit of headroom in both our institutional funds and this funds to take advantage of a few highly dislocated opportunities. But in general, our, like most sensible people right now, it's just worry about the portfolio, and make sure it's secure, um, and then start to take advantage of specific opportunities. Terrific, Adrian. Thank you very much uh, for your time. Thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.